In just a few moments, I'm going to read to you some famous words from the Old Testament. But as we meet together, what is it that unifies us? It's something much more than whether we're right or left-handed or whether we're from eastern North Carolina or the fact that we love ECU and enjoy being in a college town. It's something much deeper than anything else. What unifies us is that we believe there is one God and he has a people. And he has a people that he loves and loves to lavish with mercy and grace. Hear this. Hear, O people of God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We are here because our God is one. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love to look with you this morning in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 4 together, the first 16 verses. Um, I think it's okay to read the Bible while the guys are passing the plate still, don't you? Nothing wrong with that. Um, so I hope that isn't too much of a distraction. I hope I'm not too much of a distraction. Uh, but let's look together in God's Word, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Words are on the screen, should be in the bulletin, and uh, follow along in your own copy. Um, as I read this, um, keep in mind what we've been thinking about this whole year. That this whole calendar year, we are thinking through this one idea, pursuing our first love. Uh, it's why we went through Ezra and Nehemiah. It's why we look through the Psalms. It's why we're going through Ephesians. I hope the last sermon on Ephesians might even make more sense to you as we think about this big idea. But we're thinking about pursuing our first love. And in pursuing our first love, there are five things that we need to keep in mind. Five things. One of them is this, that we are a freed people living in community. That will be highlighted for us today in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. The second thing is that we are a celebrating people. We are a people that celebrate the love of God. We are a people that celebrate that we belong to God. We do that in all kinds of ways, whether it's singing, whether it's coming to the table together and taking communion. We are a celebrating people. God's people are not, um, we're not supposed to be a stick in the mud. We're supposed to have the deepest, greatest, long-lasting joy that is possible. We not only are celebrating people, we are a confessing people. We confess not only our sin, but we also confess our faith. What we did this morning has been going on for thousands of years. We are a people that work together in that community that we're in. That also is going to be highlighted for us today, especially in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, that we are a community who's been freed, but we work together. And finally, and perhaps you remember this one, uh, maybe not, but maybe by the end of the year you'll remember some of these. Um, the fifth thing is this, in pursuing our first love, that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That was true for people in the Old Testament. It's been true for people in the New Testament. It's true for us today. 
The best is yet to come. So as we pursue our first love, we gotta be thinking about those five things because they're everywhere in the Bible. This is the word of God. This leads us to the source of life, who is Jesus, the word made flesh. Hear this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on, the, on high, he had led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to pursue Jesus as our first love. And Lord, in pursuing Jesus as our first love, Jesus in pursuing you, Holy Spirit, and empowering us to pursue Jesus, remind us that we do that because you have first come to us. Remind us to desire that because we are your children, because we belong to you. Remind us to do that because this is your world, and you care about spreading your glory throughout the world. Remind us to do that. Because our sins are many, but your mercy is more. So help us, help us, Lord, by acting on our souls. Inform our minds and spirit, take that down into our hearts and change us with this truth from Ephesians 4. For your glory, I pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The purpose of these verses, I'm going to give it to you on the front end. The purpose of these verses is this. 
God is giving us a ravishing vision of what he wants his church to look like. He is giving us a ravishing vision of the church. And I want to say on the front end that as we go through these verses and as we think about what's here, we probably will feel a little bit weird. We'll probably maybe even think that these things and what's being described here is a little bit foreign. Because on the front end, we need to admit we are not what we should be. Christ Prez is not what it should be as a church. We're just not. Churches and where we live in Pitt County in eastern North Carolina are not what they should be. God's people in America, it's not what it should be. The church in America is not what it should be. So in, in reading through these verses and in thinking about Ephesians 4, the hope is not that we walk out of here thinking how terrible we are, okay? That's not the point. God is showing us who we are and who and what he is building, okay? So on the front end saying that we are not what we should be, that's in the hope that we realize that God's building something because the reality is we would never make this up. We could never do this in our own strength, what we're going to talk about in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We could never do it. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power to do it. But God is giving us a ravishing vision of his church. He's showing us what he is building. So let's dive right in. Two things, unity and diversity. Let's look at unity first. God is building a beautiful church that is unified. Now, look at the text. Look at how we are bombarded with this idea. Look at verses four and five and six. Just listen to what he says. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see how we're bombarded with this idea of unity? There's one God, one church, one faith, one baptism, one hope. The whole thing is built around this idea of unity. And that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 2 can say this, therefore in all of your doings, be completely humble, totally humble, totally patient, bear with everyone in everything in love. Did you catch that in verse 2? Listen to it. With all humility and all gentleness and all, with all patience, bearing with one another in love. One Lord, one faith, one church. Therefore, we are supposed to be completely humble in everything. That means at home, we have to be completely humble. That means at work, we have to be completely humble, completely patient. We are to do every single thing in our lives with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, in other words, in love. It's comprehensive, isn't it? Everything. There's no escaping God. In every area of our lives, he owns it all. That's why he says here in these verses, look at verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're bombarded with the idea. We're to be completely humble, patient, bearing with one another, doing everything in love, and we are to strive in all of that to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Isn't it fa 
excuse me, isn't it fascinating the Apostle Paul doesn't say achieve unity? He doesn't say try to find it, does he? He says be eager to maintain it. He's saying keep it. Now this is when blood pressures can start to rise because we realize, man, I don't do everything in love. I don't do everything in all patience and humility. There are areas in my life where I don't want to be loving. I want to raise walls of hostility and and create tension. God says none, no area, no place are we allowed to do anything other than in love, everything in love, because we are to be eager in our lives to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's not something we have to try to find. We can never achieve it on our own. We certainly can't create it. Jesus has purchased this unity. It's why he died. It is actually a gift to his church that we are all united around one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. Jesus has purchased this for us. Now, in thinking about unity... We need to make sure that we get the gospel here. We need to make sure that we remember the good news of what Jesus has done. Because we might just slip into thinking, okay, here's the new checklist, here's what we gotta do. And that is not what Paul's talking about at all. He's not creating a checklist for us. That's why he doesn't say create unity. That's why he doesn't say, oh, fight to make it happen. He writes to us because it is a reality in Jesus. We are the ones that begin to not maintain peace. We are the ones that often are not eager to build up one another in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. But he wants us to connect everything to the gospel. You might remember, think back over these previous chapters, Paul has been telling us who we are. We won't go through every section in the first three chapters, but remember, Paul started off this whole message talking about the reality that we are a blessed people. We have been given every blessing in the heavenly places. Do you remember this? We've kind of talked about it this way. God refuses to let us think that our relationship with him originated with us. God refuses to let us think that our relationship with him ends with us. God has been saying through the Apostle Paul that we are his children, that we have been given everything that we need. Even at the end of chapter 3, we looked at last week, Paul prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we're supposed to connect everything in the three chapters with now what he begins to say in chapter 4. This is how the Apostle Paul writes. If you look at his letters, this is how he writes. He usually spends the first half of his books telling us what God has done, telling us who Jesus is, telling us that we have been saved by grace, reminding us that we were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, reminding us that the faith that we're exercising today is because grace landed first and faith flows out of grace. Paul has been telling us, God has been telling us through Paul, everything about grace, everything about what Jesus has done, how we're defined by him in every conceivable way, so that when we hear these words, 
about being unified and doing everything in humility, patience, and gentleness, and in love, that we would connect our lives with Jesus. And because of our connection with him, our lives would look different. Does that make sense? Because we struggle with this. We want to hear, what can I do to maintain my relationship with God? What can I do to earn God's favor? It's so deep within us, we don't even realize it. That's why it's hard to sit and take in, in a sense, the first three chapters of Ephesians, because it's so overwhelmingly centered on God. The Apostle Paul doesn't write to tell us to do anything in the previous roughly 60-some verses. He's bombarding us with grace over and over and over. He's bombarding us with Jesus because he wants us to realize that Christ has done everything. You see, he's trying to make it very clear that whatever you do doesn't save you. He doesn't begin with chapter 4. And if you think that you must bring something to the table, something good to the table, like some type of obedience or a record, a, more, a great moral record, or you've got to bring something to the table like faith or uh, your family lineage, if you think you have to bring something to the table, it'll never be good enough. Your faith will never be good enough. Your moral record will never be good enough. It'll never be good enough. You see, the offense and the comfort of the gospel is that Jesus has done it all for us, and he's freely giving us his life, and we give our lives to him, and that means when we receive all that he has done for us, then we live our lives for God and not for ourselves. So he's into this in which he's saying, look, you belong completely to Jesus, and that affects how we live. How you live, how I live, how we live together. Unity. Jesus has purchased it. Strive to maintain it. All because of what Jesus has done and will do in you. Diversity. Now look at verse 7. After talking about unity, then he shifts gears. This is what he says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see? We're unified, we're one, but God has also given gifts to each one of us. These gifts are given to us according to Christ's gifting. What that means is that the grace of God that brings us life, that makes us alive to God, because we were dead and made us alive, the grace of God also equips us to live our lives to God and for God. We still need the grace of God to work in us. So God has given each one of us a gift. And it's all part of Christ's life. So if Jesus is what unifies us, then we ought to see Jesus in others. So when you look at other people, don't think about, well, what stage of life are they in? How much money do they have? Are they from this area? Are they not from this area? You look at other people looking for Jesus. You think about others in terms of who Christ is and what Christ has done or what Christ can do or what Christ will do. Isn't it a testimony that when you think back of the first century of the church, 
that this guy that wrote this letter, Paul, the one that was persecuting people, all of a sudden is dramatically changed by God? Don't you think God's people were praying for him? This was a guy that was pursuing people to kill them. And their response was, maybe this is somebody we ought to pray for. And God did something amazing. They didn't look at him and exclusively say, we got to run away from this guy and hide. They thought, wow, grace worked on us. Grace can work on him too. Jesus pursued us. Jesus can pursue him as well. We look at others, we ought to see the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as we utilize our gifts, so that if our gifting doesn't help others see Jesus, then something is not right. And I'm going to make this very personal. You all know that I really struggle with my job, and particularly this part of my job. Well, tucked away in chapter 2 of Ephesians is a phrase that really brings me tremendous comfort. Look at what Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 2, when he's talking about the Lord Jesus bringing down the walls of hostility. Notice what it says in verse 17 of chapter 2, that Jesus preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. Did you ever notice that? And he preached. He's talking about Jesus. Paul's not talking about himself. In other words, the way Paul sees his calling is that others would hear Jesus. Does that make sense? So those of you that I am supposed to teach and and preach the word of God to, my ultimate goal is not that you think that I'm a great preacher or a great pastor. It's that whenever I break open the word of God, you might say, I hear Jesus. Jesus is preaching to me. Jesus is teaching me. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. Then when we sit here, we think Jesus is speaking to me. Not Dave, because I'm miserable. I'm pathetic at this. But Jesus is not. He's strong. And he uses each one of us. You see, the Apostle Paul is already putting it into practice. He's saying, my job is to preach and teach so that everyone who hears me would hear Jesus. Not Paul. Not how gifted or ungifted he is. Even though he writes about in other letters how people thought he was horribly not gifted spectacularly not gifted. How about I say it that way? He wants them to hear Jesus. Well, here are gifts in verse 11 through 16. Let's define what these are. Before we get into the apostles and prophets and so on, let's define what a gift of God is. Because if, if Jesus has given each one of us a gift, then we got to figure out what, it, what that is, right? And, and what they are. I borrowed this from several different people putting them together. So let me define what a gift is for you to think about. A gift is given by grace. It's worked into us by the Holy Spirit for the good of others to build people up into Jesus so that the church is built up. You hear that? There's a lot in there, but we need each of those components to understand what the Bible talks about with gifting. So gifting is given to us by grace. It's worked into us by the Holy Spirit for the good of others so that others may be built up into Jesus for the good of the body, the church. So if you have a gift, but it doesn't move you toward people, that's not what the Bible's talking about with gifting. 
if you have a gift, but it's not for the betterment of the church, that's not what God is talking about here. We have to have every component to understand what God is talking about with gifts. He gives to the church. If you think that your gift comes from you, that's not the gift that this is talking about. It's by, the, it's by grace, worked into us by the Holy Spirit for others so that they would be built up into Jesus and so the church would be blessed, so that all of God's people would be blessed. That's what the type of gifting is here. That's what God means with gifting. Now, real quickly, there are dangers with this, and I need to highlight these for you. There are dangers when we start thinking about gifting. Let me mention a couple for you. One is this, that we think that talents and gifts are the same thing, and they're not. One of the dangers is that we equate talent and gifting, and they're not the same thing at all. Talents are something that you're born with, whether you're athletic, whether you're really smart, just something you're born with. That's not the same thing as gifting by the Spirit and by grace. It's not the same thing. So don't confuse talents with gifting. Here's another danger that we can have. We always can have a temptation to build our entire lives around gifting. That is a real temptation. It is a significant danger to build your life around your gifting, meaning that your heart is not really engaged. And the most striking example of this that I know is this. Before Jesus died, do you remember when he was hanging with his disciples? He was washing their feet, talking to them about what was going to go on. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples? One of you will betray me. And did you ever, have you ever noticed that none of the disciples knew who it was? They had no idea that Judas was the one. Isn't that strikingly shocking and scary? Judas had been teaching, Judas had been healing, and his heart was dead to God. Don't ever build your life around gifting because the danger is that your heart will be left disengaged. That was Judas. The disciples didn't even suspect him. He, they thought he was just like they were. His heart was never engaged. Great danger. Here's another one. And this perhaps applies to some of you more than others who have particularly worked in the church. Here's a third one. People will use you because of your gifts. You will just become useful to people. People will look at you and they will immediately assess your gifting and then boom, they will put you in a category and just want to use you for your gifts. That is a real, real danger. Because what happens is that's exactly how people burn out. It's exactly how people begin living their lives based upon their gifting without their heart being engaged. And it happens in the church a lot. And if you've been burned by the church because of this, I'm really sorry. Because it is a significant temptation. I have a friend, and I'll give you a, a, the converse example here. Uh, this guy that I know, I'm pretty good friends with him. He is the most gifted guy I think I've ever met in my life. 
uh, incredibly intelligent, unbelievable communicator, uh, outgoing personality, a gatherer, and his whole life has been people just using him for his gifts. And in our system, meaning our church system, he wanted to go into the ministry. So he became a candidate for the ministry, which means he had to be interviewed by some elders of a regional body and talk about his faith, why he should go into the ministry, all that sort of thing. And they told him no. Because they could tell that his whole life and his whole reason for going into the ministry was just his gifts. That's it. And they told him no. Said, you are not able to be a candidate for the ministry right now. Let me tell you, that was not a popular response, but it was the right one. And what they did is they said, you need to be mentored for more than a year. And he was loved on by some older pastors. And he was made by God's spirit more and more aware of how his heart was completely disconnected from his gifts. And about a year and a half later, the whole regional body absolutely endorsed him. Yes, you need to be a candidate for the ministry. And he's in the ministry today. And he would tell you that if they hadn't told him no, he probably wouldn't be in the ministry today. And if they hadn't told him no, his heart would still be disengaged from the gospel. People will use you for your gifts. And if that's happened for you, I'm very sorry I want to apologize and say that's not the way it's supposed to be. And please don't run away from the church because that's happened to you. Please recognize that it is a reality, that the church is made up of sinners. And we just want to get things done oftentimes like everybody else. And we shouldn't operate that way. Temptation is that people will use you for your gifts. Well, what are they? Let's go through these quickly. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Apostles are, technically speaking, the people who have seen the risen Christ. Paul says Jesus has given these gifts to the church, the apostles. They all saw the risen Christ. In other words, there's never been another apostle since the first century. Now, there is in a general sense of being sent, but not in the technical sense of what Paul's talking about here. No one else has received direct revelation from God other than apostles and the prophets. The prophets are those who when you read the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, they will say over and over and over again, thus says the Lord. Their whole office and gifting was based upon they received direct revelation from God. Paul says that is a gift to the church from Jesus. Then you have evangelists. They were those who kind of came alongside the apostles They were the ones who came alongside the prophets and they took what was spoken, the spoken word, the word of God, and they explained it to people. And evangelists in particular were those who really enjoyed spending time with those who weren't yet believers. So evangelists were very good at being sympathetic and empathetic and they were very adept at understanding questions that people were asking and being able to give winsome answers and being able to take the gospel to areas where it had not been taken before gift to the church. And there's part of all of us that should have something of an evangelist in us. 
Not in some formal sense of standing up in front of people, not by in some weird sense of some crusade, but sharing the reason for the hope that you have. Declaring what God has done in your life to others. Pastors and teachers, there's no actual and in the original. It's just pastor teachers. These are gifts to the church. There are people that are gifted to Jesus' body that shepherd people and teach. And there are people who are great shepherds and horrible teachers. And there are people who teach really, really well and don't relate well to people. We call those seminary professors. (laughs) Yes, I'm just joking somewhat. But these are gifts to the church. This is why some churches can have not so great teaching, but their pastor is really good with people. And people respect that, and they follow and, and, and know that he loves them, even if they can't understand a word he's saying. And hopefully over time, through the leadership of the church, he improves. The Bible talks about that too. And there are other people who teach really, really well, and they're just not so good with people. And you hope over time that through working with other elders in the church and deacons in the church and spending time with people that you improve in those areas so that you actually care about people. Because you can definitely have... This type of gift in the church, unfortunately, in which people teach well and they don't relate to people, and that's sad. What we want, what we ought to want, is for to recognize that Jesus has given some people to teach and shepherd, and some people can do both of those. And that's a gift to the church. There are other places in the New Testament that other gifts are talked about. We can't cover them all, but they're around 20 or a little more. They're like the gift of service, the gift of hospitality, the gift of encouragement. Yes, even the gift of giving is in the New Testament. And, and don't think, well, that, that, that's not me. I can't do any of those things. Well, the gift of encouragement and like all the other gifts can be done formally and informally. They can be done privately and personally. In other words, everyone here can encourage someone else in some way in their life. Remember, by grace, through the work of the Spirit, to help connect someone to Jesus for the good of the entire body. Keep that definition in mind. You might have the gift of encouragement. You might have the gift of giving. You might have the gift of hospitality, literally of opening up your life to people. That is a gift. And that is to be used in the body of Christ for the building up of the church. You see, every gift is meant to take us toward people. Every one. And so if we are not moving toward people in our lives, there's a significant deficiency because every gift that God gives moves us outside of ourselves and toward other people. The apostles and prophets, they don't continue. Evangelists and pastors, shepherds, they continue. They're still around even today. I stand before you as one of them, as someone who's called to be a pastor and a teacher. What are the purpose of these? Two things. If you look at verse 16, the purpose of these gifts is to show us how we are to function together, that we are to function like a body. The ministry model in the scripture is the body. It's the body. You see that throughout these verses, that God wants us to function like a body. This means that the Bible doesn't have a tradition model of ministry, meaning that we just exist to keep tradition going. That we just exist out of a deep sense of control and suspicion of everyone else. 
that we're closed to those who are outside, who are not like us, where the phrase is often repeated, well, this is how we've always done it. The model in the Bible is not the tradition model. The model in the Bible is not corporate, in which there's a CEO that runs the show. There's a CEO that is personality-driven and that people just gather together to sit under the guru. That people come because they need to be told what to do and given marching orders. You won't find that in the Bible. The Bible does not have a corporate model for ministry at all. Corporate models ends up thinking that the bottom line defines what is success and failure. You won't find that in the Bible. You see, the goal of the body is maturity. That's the hope, that people would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would look more and more like Jesus to a watching world, that we would continue to receive encouragement and patience and grace and gentleness from God so that we would then in turn show that to others, so that we would be able to discern sound teaching. Did you catch that in these verses 14? See, the purpose of the body is to grow. So we go from childhood all the way to maturity, to adulthood, which means that we begin to discern what is good and sound doctrine and what is not. Here are some examples. Can you tell if something that someone is saying is man-centered or God-centered? That is growing in maturity, in which you're being able to understand if a message is man-centered or God-centered. I learned this one from my dad. My dad was ordained in the ministry before he went away to seminary. He went away to seminary, the largest evangelical seminary in the world at the time. Got out of seminary, was pastoring a church, and he continued to read through the Bible. And he kept coming across one particular book of the Bible. And he couldn't fit that book of the Bible and what it said with everything else that he had been taught, the Bible says. So you know what? He realized that the Bible wasn't wrong. That he was wrong. That the Bible's one whole book. And just because he had learned all this stuff about the Bible, but yet there was one book that didn't square with everything he'd been taught, he decided he he should rethink what he thought the Bible said. He was growing in maturity, understanding what good teaching is and what is not. I've had friends who have had to work through this, and maybe you are there as well. I have had to go through this myself, in which there was a form of Christianity that basically was nothing more than this. God is the best way to control my life. You ever been through that kind of system? Deeply, deeply scarring. Growing in doctrine helps us identify what is really man-centered and what is God-centered. The other purpose of the gifts is to equip. Look in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry and the growth of the church. Paul uses this idea of equipping to teach us something profound about the gospel. It's this. This idea of equipping is actually restoring what is disjointed. This is really important to understand about a ravishing view of the church and the gifts that God gives his church. Equipping is uh, restoring dislocated joints. That's the idea here. Here's the point. God, through the work of Jesus, is putting us back into our proper place. He's fitting our lives back together so that we actually fit somewhere. He's bringing us into alignment. 
You see, the problems that we have are because everything is supposed to be under Jesus, and it's not. Everything is supposed to be under Jesus and what he is, but it's not. It's disjointed. It's out of a line. What does uh, brisket in eastern North Carolina, snow plow in eastern North Carolina, surfboards in Minnesota, and riding a tricycle on Highway 264 all have in common? They were all built for something else. That's sin. You know, cow, that, that... brisket a pig is barbecue not cow right a pig was made for barbecue a tricycle on 264 no tricycle is made for the driveway and the garage it's not made for a highway a surfboard minnesota what no a shark in arizona never doesn't fit you see that's what happens because of sin that things are disjointed and out of place And Jesus died and rose from the dead so that he would put us back together and bring the totality of our lives in alignment with him. So what's often dislocated? Our ego, our time, our money, our desires, our worry, our anxiety, our identity. All of those things are out of alignment. They all have to be brought under Jesus My ego has to be brought under Jesus. My time has to be brought under Jesus. Work six days, rest one. It's a rhythm. My money has to be brought under Jesus because he owns everything that I have. My worry and anxiety has to be brought under Jesus because he's the only one that can fix it. My identity has to be received from Jesus. I can't compare myself to others and build my identity. It doesn't work. It's out of alignment. And what Jesus is doing in giving us these gifts is to bring everything together so it fits like a body. Well, how do I know my gifts? I hope that you will grow uncomfortable enough just living for self that we will be able to pursue other people and build friendships with others and engage with other people that aren't just like us. It's fine to talk with people who are like us, but it's also great to talk with people who aren't like us. And getting close enough to them so you can actually ask them, so you can be vulnerable enough to ask vulnerable questions of, well, what do you think I, where do you think my gifting is? Where do you think my gifts are? Do you see me as an encourager? Do you see me as able to open up myself to others? And being willing to hear what someone says may not line up with what you think it is. But getting outside of ourselves and into others and being engaged with others is the place in which we can understand what our giftings are. How in the world do we get these gifts? I'm landing it here, so just hang in there. Look at verses 8 through 10. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you wanted to know. How do we get any of these gifts? Look at verses 8 through 10. They tell you. Paul takes from a passage in the Old Testament and brings Christ into it. Before Jesus returned to the Father, he came to the earth. That's the point of verses 8 through 10. And he humbled himself and became obedient to overcome our dead hearts and make us alive. 
He came to earth to tear down the wall of hostility that we set up all the time because we don't want to live in love. We don't want to bear with others with all humility, all patience, all long-suffering. We all would love to do our jobs if we didn't have to be loving, right? We all would maybe delight to be parents if we didn't have to be patient, right? Oh, I'm willing to be a parent. I just don't want to be patient, right? Jesus came to earth to do all of these things so that he ascended back to heaven, achieving the greatest victory ever. You see, our, the victory that we have is not in the future. It's in the past. Paul is saying Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to the Father is the victory of victories. And because he won the victory over death and sin and spiritual death, he now gives gifts to people because he has everything. When I served in campus ministry, I was able to get a Bible study going with uh, some guys on the baseball team. And I got to know these guys pretty well. And some, so, several of them were really, really good players. And I spent a lot of time with them, understood things about their lives and how messy that was. And I got a phone call about 12.45 a.m. one night. And a friend, one of these students called me and said, Dave, who is a friend, I just got drafted. He got drafted by the Braves. It was his dream. He grew up around Atlanta. He had worked really hard his whole life to play baseball in high school and start and then be able to play in college. He left school early so he could try to enter the draft, and he made it. And he called me almost at 1 o'clock in the morning, and he said, I have just signed with the Atlanta Braves, and I received X amount uh, for a bonus check, and I want to give some of it to the ministry. Amazing night. I didn't sleep that much after that just because I was excited. In his mind, he had achieved some type of victory, right? And because of that victory, he wanted to share that with people that he loved, which included getting his parents out of debt and doing all kinds of things for his friends. He was ecstatic. That's Jesus. Jesus has won the greatest victory, and he's ascended into heaven so that he can give gifts to the church. That's us. That's me. That's you. So that we can be built up together in love. So that we can grow in maturity. So that we can discern what's true and what's not. So that we can live with all humility toward others and gentleness and and forbear things that we never thought we could do. Because we want to live lives absolutely saturated with Jesus. And we're willing to live with others so that we can help all sorts of our lives get realigned. Because they're all out of whack. And friends, that's why Jesus died and rose from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks into our lives. Continue to change us and make us desire to love others and be patient and gentle and be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Help us to know and discern our gifts so that we might help others grow into Jesus for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we we pray, amen.